HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. And we're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugar cane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hello. So this is Dayton Cowan. This is my first ever live podcast. So um, because it's live, I think we need to hear from the audience. So audience, can you make a little bit of noise, like as much noise as you can make? Okay, we are live at South by Southwest. Usually on Speaking Broadly, I interview extraordinary people who reveal their challenges and their successes, and we take away amazing life lessons. And here at South by, I have one of the greatest people to share her story, and that is Martha Hoover. Yay, Martha! <laughs> Thank you, Dana. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm just, I, I'm in the customer service business, so I hope that we don't disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> so you started your career in uh, 1989. Martha created an amazing restaurant group called Patashu Inc. in Indianapolis. And she started when she had two kids and she didn't even know that there was a third on the way. So you kind of had twins. Well, Actually, it, the story is even more complicated than that because 
I not only did I not know I was pregnant with my third child, I also opened up my first restaurant having never worked a day in a restaurant. Um, and it was actually a second career. I was educated as a lawyer and had a very interesting and I would say fairly robust, although short-lived career as a sex crimes prosecutor. Tosa set so segueing from that to I the just, restaurant I think we world. Can, we just can't skip that completely. Yeah. Like, what is what is the segue between sex crimes and restaurants? Or now there's probably more than we'd like to. Unfortunately, it has come full circle. Yes. Not for me personally, <laughs> but for the industry. So, um, so what are the commonalities between you know being a lawyer? and being a restaurateur? Well, actually, the, it's not so much what the commonalities were, but I had a remarkable, I had a, a, a person that I worked for, the prosecutor that I worked for, was an extraordinary role, role model for me because he, um, he, by the way, is a professor at Harvard at the JFK School of Public Affairs now. So he rightfully is, is known as someone who's a real thought leader but he came to a group of young women lawyers and said, I'm going to organize what we've learned since has been the second sex crimes unit in the United States. Wow. And I need you I need you people to create this area of law. Figure it out. Um, and that figure it out mentality uh, really has helped me in everything I've done in the restaurant world where so much of restaurant life is figuring things out. And usually in the middle of a rush, when you're short-staffed and you've got to figure things out quickly. Well, I loved how, okay, so as you said, she started and you had never worked in a restaurant and yet you were listening to all your friends who said, you know what, it's the worst business in the world and the employees are horrible and all of them fail and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's those restaurants. That's not going to be my restaurant. Well, you know, no one, everyone always says, oh, if I had a dime for everyone who told me I was going to be a success or whatever, nobody <laughs> told me that I would be a success in the restaurant business, mainly because it was 1989 at a time before food was at all chic or popular or hip or whatever the word is. There was zero food awareness. Um, I'm, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, which really was, uh, we use food desert it's completely differently now, but back then it was a true food desert. Um, accessibility to product was impossible, even though Indiana is a farm state, a, a very, we have a rich history of agriculture in the state of Indiana. Our best products were not being used locally at all. Um, farm to table, as a phrase, was not uttered for 15 years after I opened my first restaurant. And yeah, I had no idea what I was doing, but I jumped into <laughs> it. And why did you even want to jump into it? Well, I, I was cooking at home, I was entertaining, and I was feeding my own family the type of food that I could not find in any restaurant. And I needed the social experience. I didn't realize how much it was lacking in my life. Um, I traveled considerably. I got to go to wonderful restaurants worldwide. Um, my, I grew up in Texas, actually. Grew up in Galveston. Uh, left when I I, anyone here a native Texan because I have such pride still to this day of being a, a Texan. I was My story is that I was born in Brooklyn, but at age three months, my parents moved to Galveston, Texas for my father's career. 
Um, and all I remember growing up was how we had to go back to New York to get the kind of food uh-huh. that we thought were really incredible food. And of course, I grew up, this is before social media, before grocery stores had things like field greens in them, let alone <laughs> arugula. Um, no one had heard of pork belly unless you really lived in southern Indiana, things like that. So I really wanted to create a restaurant in my neighborhood that served the kind of food that I was making uh, at home, feeding my family and entertaining my friends with. And I really just had zero idea that I could not pull it off. (laughs) Um, That to me is extraordinary because most people are plagued with at least some level of reasonable self-doubt. And this seems to be a gene you do... You didn't inherit from your father, who you say is, was quite a dreamer. How is it that you had no self-doubt? I, think, I do think it's almost a genetic predisposition. I have always had one of those, um, I just, it's a personality thing. I really felt that I, I could pull it off. Uh, I've never been somebody to have a plan B. Um, and I didn't have a plan B when it came to this business either. I just thought if I worked hard enough and if I gave it my all, it would succeed. Um, I also realized that I was, I I really believe in kind of what I call micro ambition. I didn't set off to open up a restaurant where I would have 30 restaurants in 10 years. I wasn't building a business. I wasn't looking for investors. I wasn't talking about going public, all the things that today people in restaurant world in particular do. They don't open up a restaurant, they open up a concept. And concepts are always supposed to be scalable and all that stuff. That was not my vision at all. I was opening up a restaurant in my neighborhood that would feed people who lived in my neighborhood the kind of food that I was cooking and feeding my kids and my husband at home. I love the notion of micro-ambition, though. Like, and is that something that you apply to other things in your life? You're, you're, the point being that you, um, you set a reasonable goal. I set very reasonable goals, and then I achieve them, and, I don't, and once I achieve those goals, I don't stop. Uh, you know, each goal kind of begets another goal, and I'm very happy with that. But I don't feel that, I think had I set out to open up a restaurant empire, it would have failed um, for many reasons. I, I, it just is extraordinarily unobtainable. In particular, when you consider when I opened, what the you know environment was, not only regarding food and food awareness or lack thereof, but also women being in this industry um, you know, and, and other factors, being in the, geo- the <laughs> geographical limitations I had of being in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, a, a community that I adore and I love and we've put a lot of resources into, but admittedly in 1989, it was a far cry from a food-driven city. So let's talk about this no- the notion of confidence. What if, if there's someone who has no confidence, how do you fake it? Like, you know, I, I honestly, I consider myself to be a remarkably empathetic person, but I don't know how to fake confidence because I'm just somebody who has since day one had a remarkable amount of confidence. Um, it, and you know, that's a real difference. I'm not arrogant. I, I, at least I would hope that if you polled people who know me, they would say, no, she's confident. There is a fine line between being arrogant and being confident, I was just very sure of my ability to 
think quickly, to be flexible. I think flexibility is a huge factor in anything you jump into, especially if you admit that you don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge or experience. I also think that as a courtroom, you know, I was a lawyer in a courtroom, and I worked in an organization that just threw me into, you know, jury trials from day one with no experience. And I was like, I got to figure this out. Um, It's kind of like putting your toe in the deep end of the pool or just jumping in and figuring out how to swim. And I'm extremely comfortable with taking risks and with jumping, in other words, with jumping in (laughs) the deep end and figuring out how to swim. I am not a risk adverse person. My theory has always been... And do you cultivate that? Like, is that... I do cultivate it. I think it's incredibly important for the success of my organization, short-term and long-term. We embrace change. Um, You know, most organizations, most people, I think, fight change. Um, And because I'm risk adverse, because I like taking risk and because I have this ridiculous amount of, um, you know, confidence, I suppose, um, I really believe that we can make changes if something's not working and we can make changes quickly. Um, but there is a real, my, where I get critical of organizations and people, whatever the units are, is that they do not make change. Um, and change is one of those, it's a natural force. We cannot deny that it exists. And I think the earlier in life you understand that there is true, that what happens with change usually is improvement. And if you embrace it, you'll be better off for it. And so I've embraced change my whole life. So let's let's talk about innovation, because that is a form of change. And you've been an innovator since 1989, as you said, being in Indianapolis, creating this restaurant when not only was it not happening in Indianapolis, it wasn't happening in most cities in the country. Right. Um, so how is it that these ideas come from within your head and I mean obviously the idea for the restaurant group did or the single restaurant and then it grew but how do you cultivate innovation every single day because like or take public greens as an example one of your restaurant concepts yeah well you know here's the thing with when I started out I never said to myself I am going to open up a restaurant that's going to be disruptive and is going to innovate I did not realize in 1989 that what I was doing was at all innovative or disruptive do you think that and, the notion of um, you know setting out to create innovation is sort of a false I do yeah. I really do I've met a lot of people in a lot of different industries who have done something that would be described as innovative. And I know that none of them set out as a goal of being innovative. They just happen to be innovative. I mean, maybe Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, I mean, all these people that I admire greatly have had much different goals. But in terms of my goal, innovation was not one of them. Or at least that's not the language I used. I knew that I was opening up a restaurant that was going to be, in fact, it's a term that we have trademarked. I knew from day one that what I was doing was going to be radically different. Um, And it was that, and in 1989, by the way, we didn't use the term radical because, (laughs) I mean, we used it internally. I used it a lot, but the culture didn't use it because it was still considered to be kind of a negative, just like we didn't use words like feminism and stuff like that in 89. Um, 
so you have to kind of go back to the culture in which I was conducting business. Um, I was, you know, a, I was pregnant when I opened with my first business. That was not really accepted. I was, I had three young children at home. My husband was in, I was married, I am married, but my husband was in his, what I call his career building days. You know, so where did the innovation come come in? It came in regarding the quality of food that I was serving, the type of, of food, and even in the type of restaurant that I opened. I opened a breakfast and lunch restaurant at a time when no one but a Waffle House or that type of of enterprise was serving breakfast and lunch. It was not on anyone's radar. And I did that because, not because it was innovative, not because I was a trendsetter 30 years out. Now breakfast and lunch restaurants are popping up huge, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of my favorite ones is actually in, in, in Indianapolis. Oh, well, good. good. Yeah. So at any rate, um, I opened it up because um, it's what worked for my family. So, you know, what do they always say about mother, something about mothers being the, the, the source of all innovations, motherhood really did impact how I dealt with my business. It did not impede how I dealt with my business, but it just made me really become flexible about what I was doing. So does that, are you saying that you didn't do dinner so you could get home to the kids? Precisely. I always figured that, I think I stole a line from Hillary Clinton who said that um, Chelsea, her daughter, didn't know if she was home did not know that she wasn't home making chocolate chip cookies all day. <laughs> um, I, my children, I had to be in a pickup line at 10 after 3 to pick up my two daughters from their school. They were in preschool and kindergarten at, when I opened up my restaurant. And I closed the restaurant at 3 o'clock every afternoon. I figured they had no idea what I was doing. Oh and I really do believe in terms of our family that, I and I believe back then very strongly, that as long as we were together most nights for dinner, everything was going to be just fine. So what about the path to growth then? So how long did you have one restaurant? Because now you have, you know, 14 and growing. Uh, 14, soon to be 16. Um, and by the summer, we'll have 16 restaurants with six different concepts, six different types of restaurants. Um, the path to growth was not quick. Um, you know, today, everyone is on kind of hyper growth. Um, people get funded very quickly and they expand their restaurants very quickly. I have always been what I like to say a, a, a believer of slow, smart, strategic growth, um, which is code for not growing very quickly. So I've been doing this almost 30 years. So you can do the math and see how quickly we have or have not expanded. And that was done very intentionally. In the first place, I don't I don't have investors, so I have to figure out the money part. I have to basically, you know, collect sticks and logs to create fire every time I open up a restaurant, um, which is has worked for me quite well because I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, uh, that goes along with having confidence, by yeah. the way, is you are a control freak. I'm a bit of a control freak, and I don't want people telling me necessarily what corners I'm supposed to be making and what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, Do you think there are any downsides to being a control freak? Have you discovered any? No. <laughs> Do you think your staff really, would say there's I no really downside? Don't. No, I think it's what has catapulted my company. We started out as a bar setting company, and as we grow, what are my internal mantras that we refer to every day is how big do you get before you get bad? 
um, something that I think other businesses, particularly restaurants, should look at. Um, and we refuse to get bigger if it impacts our footprint of being bar setting. Um, and that's just something that is one of those critical true norths for us. We just don't waver from that. I remember you said there was a concept that you were ready to open, but you couldn't find the staff or couldn't. Isn't really- absolutely. It was Crispy Bird. We know that is absolutely right. We opened up Crispy Bird in mid-December, and we really thought we would open it by the beginning of fourth quarter, not the end of fourth quarter. And we waited because we could not find the right staff. We could find staff, but we just couldn't find the right mix of staff. And one of the things that we do that I think is uh, different and perhaps innovative in the restaurant business is we put a lot of resources into our hiring, training of people. And I know people say that, but they don't really mean that. When restaurants open, they're usually overstaffed considerably. There's this theory that we'll just get rid of people, they'll self-select or we'll yeah. get rid of them if you know the business isn't there or if they don't work out You right. open really big and then they, see what they happens. open big and yeah. we don't do that. Yeah. We, and for instance, this is you know something I throw out there as, as um, an example, Public Greens, our first Public Greens opened three years ago. Uh, about 80% of the original staff is still with us. And that's something I'm remarkably proud of. And there's a reason they're still with us. Right. I mean, um, anyone who knows restaurant business stats, like, that is, that's insane. I mean, there's 50% turnover is sort of an accepted rate. I, I even think the turnover rate nationally, I, I looked it up for a conference I went to several months ago, and it's actually higher. higher. Okay. Um, and what we, ha- what we find is that if someone stays, what we usually lose someone within the first... 30 days. Hmm. They do, and you know what? It's totally fine. People self-select or we decide that they're not a good fit. No one's got a gun to anyone's head. It's, you know, enterprise. Someone can go find, in, especially in today's market with all the restaurant competition. If you want to be in a restaurant, you can find a job. But we really are a different kind of a restaurant. And we offer, it, you know, people always talk about the necessity of engaging employees. And my thinking about that, quite honestly, is that engagement only benefits the employer. Because what engagement means, if you really boil it down, is that somebody becomes mindful and works harder and works better. And that's necessary. You have to engage your employees so that they know what they are doing and how to do it. But I believe there's a why to, to being employed that is beyond just getting a paycheck. And so what I really try to do in my company is we try to enrich people's lives other, it, instead of just engaging them. And we try to enrich their lives. And as a result of this enrichment philosophy, I believe that people become more, um, they, be, they have greater pride of, of product, they have greater pride of place, and they have greater loyalty. And there's, real, there's no doubt, Dana, that when you're employed by somebody, it's, you've got to give 100% both ways. Um, and I tell my employees going into it, I expect 100% from you, but I'll give 100% too. And so I know that you've done some uh, remarkable things. I think, you know, 
first in the country, at least that I know of, uh, in terms of your employees, which I think people could learn from. One of them is the um, financial literacy program that you've launched. Yeah, we launched several years ago a Potashu financial literacy workshop that was open to all of our staff employees and any of their significant others that they, friends even, that they wanted to bring along. And for a very small $25 a class fee, um, and by the way, that fee goes back at the end when they graduate, they can choose to take that fee back and put it back in their pocket, or they can donate it to the Potashu Foundation, which I'm hoping we talk about later, <laughs> um, or they can donate it to what a, another program that we have um, called our Peer Fund, which is our Potashu Employee Emergency Relief Fund. So they, it, it really is money that they can self-direct in one of three ways after they graduate. But the whole point of the class is to teach people something that most of us don't learn you have to learn on your own. You don't learn it in school. Most parents do a terrible job. For whatever reason, most people have a very unhealthy relationship with money. Um, and, you know, when you're in a restaurant world, it's a precarious world. Um, and most restaurant workers live precarious, li vulnerable lives. And this was a way for us to say, if you get control of this, you can create goals for yourself and you can accumulate wealth for yourself and you can define what your life is and you can get power over it. And so that's the whole point of our, of our financial literacy workshop. I just thought it was really inspiring. I, I feel like I and everyone I know, you know, no matter where you are in the spectrum, whether you're vulnerable or less vulnerable, you need to be sort of financially and fiscally fit. Like you need to understand, um, you know, how to pay the government, how to save, you know, how much money you're spending, how much you're saving. And in the restaurant industry, as you say, people are can be... Um, very vulnerable, and I wanted you to talk about the Employee Relief Fund. Again, something I'd never heard about. The, your company's incredibly charitable. We can talk about the foundation, but I think along the way to this, um, you know, to giving to the foundation, you realize that there are people in your own company who also had needs, and you want to be sure to address them. Absolutely. You know, the restaurant industry is the most, I believe, representative industry in, of culture. Um, so it has people who are remarkably skilled and remarkably educated, and then it has people who are remarkably unskilled, and it, it draws from that entire spectrum. Um, and I think that one of the problems in, with restaurant workers is that they don't a lot of times have safety nets, um, that the people that people in other professions and other industries automatically have. So we decided to several, this is probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we created uh, our peer fund because we had so many people in our midst who did not have the safety net of family or safety net of savings or safety net of insurance, perhaps. And when something relatively even small but but major happens that creates a financial burden for them, the burden spins out of it can spin out of control, and I, I so we have a, I have a couple of examples. I had a, a chef who started working for us, and he had not even been with us thirty days when he got very toxically ill. He needed this is the honest truth, he needed four root canals. And, Ooh. you know, root canals are really expensive. He was going to have to take lots of time off. He didn't have the money. And he was 
he he was fevery and had to go to the hospital. I mean, it was really a problem. And the Pure Fund paid his dental bills so that he could not only get healthy, but get back to work. We had a single mother who was going out to one day to take her children to uh, daycare and school, and her van, all of the, the wheels had been removed, and her oh van God. was on cinder blocks. And, you know, at $400 a pop, times 400 times four, it's a lot of money for someone to come up to. Uh, so she approached the peer fund. Um, and the peer fund, by the way, one of the things I love the most about it is I don't administer it. It is administered by three employees of my company. Um, they are from all different positions of the company. It's not all, it's, in fact, there is no manager involved in it. And they decide how the money is spent and who gets the money. They decide whether or not someone gets the money as a grant, which in other words, as a gift, or if they get it as uh, a uh, loan, uh, or if there is some combination of the two. Um, and the company has seeds the peer fund. Um, and once a year, we'll, once or twice a year, the staff on its own will create some kind of a fundraiser for the peer fund, but the vast majority of the money in the peer fund is seeded by the company. So um, this brings up an interesting point because you had, you're had you a self-acknowledged happy control freak, and yet here you have empowered your team to really run something on their own. I mean, what type of communication do you have to generate new ideas and so that you really get the most of the team that you have? Because in fact, now with the six concepts, you have a lot going on. Are those things that that um, came from within the company and bubbled up? Or? This actually did bubble up. This was not an original idea of mine at all. Um, you know, I always tell staff that I have an open door. I, I say a couple things, and, and I really mean it. I have an open door. People can get a hold of me in any way. They can knock on my door. They can call. They can text. They can email. And I respond to everything. Um, plus, I see people. And when you do have, we have 450 people, but... Remarkably, since we don't have turnover, I get to know everyone and I get to know their families. And I realize that there is a great, I have a great debt of gratitude. You know, people wake up every day and make my dream come true. And all of the people who are making my dream come true have their own dreams themselves. And I tread on those dreams very lightly. Um, so I try to make myself as available as possible. But what happened in this instance is we created a foundation, and the Pottery Foundation has a very narrow mission, and the mission is to feed children in our community who live with daily food insecurity. Shockingly, Indianapolis um, has a very, very sad situation, especially when you consider the fact that it is the capital of Indiana. Um, it is the most populated city in Indianapolis. Uh, Indianapolis is the most populated city in our state. We live in an agricultural state, yet sadly, 80% of children who attend the Indianapolis public school systems live at or below poverty and live with daily food insecurity. Oh so that was just a statistic that blew me away. 80%? Right? 80%. Is it's, out it's one of, of the highest control. in the United States. So wow. um, we we have this program where we feed kids. And it's a wonderful program. But what happened is after we announced the formation of the foundation and we started feeding children in our community, a couple of people came to me, came to my office, and they said, you know what, that's great, and we totally support it, and we're so happy. But, you know, within our own four walls, if somebody would lose their job, 
they could be within two or three weeks of also having issues if they didn't find another position quickly. And I really took that very seriously. And I thought, we just have to do more. So that's an example of an idea that bubbled up. And we took it and said, let's run with it. Let's create something. I am a control freak. Um, And I am a happy control freak, (laughs) as you said. I'm actually a happy person. And that's something that I think is so overlooked. Anymore, when we hire, I always say the first thing that someone has to be is happy. I don't mean silly. Uh I mean someone who understands the bounty that life has has for them and that is really accepting and, and grateful because I think that people who are not happy can bring a lot of chaos and drama to a workplace. Um, to their own lives, and it really does uh, infect an entire organization. Happy people are much, they just, they're happier. And they are, they, I, I, I know that sounds silly, but the thing about happy people is that they, they want to make other people happy. So that, that's a, a bit of an adrift, but oh, I, I think don't that think. Actually, it goes to the core of one of your. Um, you know, one of your missions is that you want to make other people happy, right? You're in this. You were in this business uh, originally to uh, give Indianapolis and your friends and you a place to eat the type yeah. of food that you wanted. You know, at the end of the day, I we're a restaurant, right? And restaurants serve people, but at the end of the day, our job really is through every meal to deliver some moment of joy for somebody. No one should come into a restaurant and leave less happy and less satisfied than when they came in. And that's just, so going but back to the leads, control. That, that leads me to my one of my favorite things that I learned about you, which is that um, if a customer complains, if they email you, you get right back to them. Well, we have this thing on all of our menu called Telehuman. Um, and there, it's a little blurb. And uh, and it's something, by the way, again, it was an idea that bubbled up. Uh, someone came up with the idea, and I said, that is great, but let's run with it. Let's do it right. Let's put this, let's create an email space. Uh, it's telehuman at cafepotashoe.com. Let's print this on the menus. Let's print this on the blackboards. Let's let people know that instead of just going to social media and lodging a complaint, we, if we created a problem, we created it in real time, give us an opportunity to correct it in real time. And also, if things are really good, let me know that too. I need to reward the people who are doing so much work for me. So um, this telehuman at Cafe Parachu, all those emails come directly to me. And that, that actually <laughs> surprises people because we have you know, a lot of customers. We're extraordinarily busy. We're lucky for that. And we're not perfect. We're a very human organization. We make food. There's probably nothing more hands-on and tactile than making food for people. And unfortunately, mistakes are made. Um, and mistake could be the mistake of the kitchen, mistake of our systems, mistake of a server, whatever it is. But we want the opportunity to correct that mistake. So it's it's been the most effective way that I've come up with to... Um, to actually have communication directly with my customers. Right, because you'd say that social media, you know, people feel like they're really communicating, but what they're sometimes complimenting, sometimes complaining, but it's uh, it doesn't give it's more a- it's more about them than about actually you know correcting an experience. Yeah, and that's my whole goal is yeah. let me make this better right now. So has it changed things? You know, the 
to tell a human? Do people do that? Yes, they yeah. do. They yeah. do it. Um, and do they do it ever truly in real time? Like, absolutely. You know, really? Absolutely. They'll do it in real time. I get people who tell me things like, uh, bathroom at, at Pottershoe in the Park needs attention. I really? love that. Yeah. <laughs> we also have signs in our bathroom that say something like uh, bathrooms at cafepottershoe.com, which also come to me. Um, <laughs> oh so, you know, waste paper baskets overflowed. Uh, one of the things, being in a community and having the community, um, the support of the community uh, that we have is that we have a lot of customers who have remarkable ownership, feelings of ownership about the cafe and its success. And so they take really they take a lot of remarkable pride in my company, right? And I think that is something that you know I when when they communicate with me, I need to communicate back, and I do. That's almost like having extra staff. You it know? is. <laughs> you know, someone asked me at a conference I spoke at in Washington several months ago how many people were in my marketing department. And at that point in time, I said about 450. Um, and when, what you just said makes me think, no, you're, you're, I'm wrong. It's more than 450, that being the number of my employees. It's really everyone who walks into my restaurant. Right. So um, being in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. uh, you, you're not a secret to the community there. You're a beloved human and institution and well, yet thank you. Um, cracking the national scene I feel like is something that you've done um, recently and what was that like to be doing such innovative work and not get the recognition uh, in sort of the national community? It was extraordinarily frustrating because we knew that we were as I said a minute ago bar setting in almost every way and had been since the very beginning and we were not getting national recognition. Um, although we certainly had people, we knew that people would come and visit us, and we got tremendous amount of positive feedback from customers, obviously been remarkably well supported. We just couldn't crack that code. Um, and What once, do you think made the difference? I'm sorry? What do you think made the difference? I, I think having someone like Eater came, uh, and they almost accidentally uh, found out about the cafe. They were we were not on a tour list of mm-hmm. you know the Visit Indie organization, and they found us accidentally. Um, I met the executive. I met Amanda, um, and she was like, "Why have I never heard of you?" And I said, "I don't know. I think a lot of it was my the time, not just the timing of mm-hmm. when I opened, 1989." Um, that was a time when food journalists in particular were only interested in restaurants and what was going on on right. the coast, as you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, and we were in what was considered flyover country. Um, and now that everyone is looking towards cities, cities such as Austin and Nashville and Asheville and, you know, cities that are not even first or second tier, but yeah. third tier and fourth tier cities, I think it was natural that we would You got percolate. caught up in that. Yeah. It's interesting because when I went to Indianapolis, uh, we had a Best New Chef from Indianapolis. So right. I, I went after the fact I didn't choose that Best New Chef when I was at Food and Wine. But, uh, you know, I was given a list and I realized America... Um, because of social media and because of the sort of the fluency in the food world, certain cities around the world come down to a very short list. I was in Charleston and I got a very short list. And it's sort of the list that 
everybody has but in you shares. Know what? That's the, that is so interesting that you say that because we have, there's an organization in every city. Ours is called Visit Indy. And their job is to promote the city. And of course, over the last five years, all these organizations are promoting their city as the next big food city because food is what's driving urban development and um, economic success, levels of sophistication of cities, and everyone wants to be dubbed the next best food city. But what we find is that all of these organizations stick to a very short list. And so everyone is, all the journalists are going to the exact same restaurants. Exactly. Is that what you found? Yes. And in fact, so from the sort of the food snob version of it, we would never go to visit you know, indie because that is uh, because that you has, know what that list is. Yeah, yeah, that has the veneer of like who paid to be on that list. How did they get on that list? Do I trust that list? Do I trust the person who chose the people on that list? And so, generally, those things for the insider food world are ignored. However, for the there are you know maybe twenty of us or thirty of us who you know travel the country and exchange lists, and those lists are very short and they become very limited. And so when we first met. You're like, you came to Indianapolis. It was like, was I on your come, list? Yeah. And you didn't come, and I'm like, you weren't on my list. And and I was really upset. That's right. Like, so I was. was. It I was, was like, I am pissed. What is going on? And it's a and it, it feels collusive, and it yes. isn't. But it's what happens with social media is the it's how the world is now in a bad way because it means people don't go off the beaten track. It means that people take you know. Um, they take the shot. It's almost like um, you know a prize in a zoo or yeah. a, um, at a safari. You know You're taking what? safari pictures rather than trying to get to know the place yourself because you're cheating by lists. But I think that you probably, you know, it, it took a while till someone from Eater tripped across you. And yeah. then I know that you are um, close with the Cherry Bomb crew and oh, that yes. helped. Love, and my, then, love the Bomb Squad. And then, you know, once you've got Eater and the Bomb Squad, you're, the profile rises. It's just a, such an interesting example of where we are at this minute in food culture. Well, I also think that um, during most of my expansion years to date for the cafe, we also were ignored, and I, I know this is a touchy subject, but one that I think is really critical. I think we were ignored a lot because I am I am female, and I have a female-driven company. We are um, famously and uh, famously forward, a female-forward company, and I think. But why would, do you think that is? Like, why would someone ignore a female? focused company like wouldn't it be about the food well i think there's a cultural narrative um and the cultural narrative that we are now exploring very openly um has not has been kind of the dark little secret and the dark little secret is that women i believe have been whatever their product is whatever they are doing whatever their work is has been devalued historically and culturally so i do believe that in fact i this is scientifically this is proven that women work is devalued number 1 number 2 i what i fought especially in the beginning of my restaurant career was the fact that people assumed that this my business was a hobby for me I Uh think and and that was an issue too and the only reason why they assumed that because I never gave that impression at all I never treated this like a hobby it wasn't a hobby it was always a business I always had 
a plan and a vision for what the company would do and what it would become. Um, but they did that merely because they, the bias of the culture and because I was a woman. So I think it all is intertwined and interlaced and it's kind of hard to separate out those issues. Although one could argue that if you go into a restaurant and you like the food, you're not going to know too much about the owner, right? You know what? I, I think one of the things that happened before even social media is with, with the rise of Food Network and the importance of food journalism is that people do, do know who the owners are. People do know who the chefs are. Um, and for so long, so much attention was spent on the male chefs and the male owners. In fact, it, to a very toxic level. Right. Well, um, that has you know, certainly proved out to be, to be true. Uh, your restaurants aren't built on the cult of chef personality at all. No. Right? No. And so that's another thing. When the entire food journalism world is about the chef, 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 and many of them being male, um, that was not a leg up that you had. Why did you build an, uh, sort of this incredible group without star chefs? Well, you know what? I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me, to tell you the truth, that a star chef... Here's the thing. Um, again, I'm from Indiana, so I like sports analogies. And, you know, we're big basketball people. Um, and people love to talk in business to use an analogies that are related to sports. I believe that the restaurants are the biggest sport, sporting event in the world. It is a team effort every day. And I say that with all sorts of mad respect and love for coaching as opposed to managing. Um, and I really believe that it is unfair to think that whoever the star chef is, that he or she is actually the one doing all the work. And I really believe in shared responsibility, and I believe that you need to give people credit. And so um, in your business, you actually have two of your kids working with you. I do. Two of my three children are working with me. Um, I have Rachel Hoover, right? Is a has her master's in uh, restaurant sustainability from the University of Gastronomic Science in Bra, Italy, the home place, the birthplace of the slow, slow food, food movement with Carlo Petrini, um, and she studied there for years and is now our director of sustainability and culinary education. Um, and then my son David Hoover is the chef at Bar Fourteen at Bar One Fourteen and Crispy Bird. Um, and he, after graduating from USC, moved to Paris and went to culinary school, worked for Daniel Rose, and then moved to Copenhagen and worked there for a really well-known restaurant. Um, and we're fortunate to have both of them in Indianapolis. So what is that like, working with your two kids? Like having um, a generous, loving, clearly de deeply devoted mom, but who's also a control freak and your boss. So um, how does that work out? Well, you know what? Here's the nice thing for them is they ultimately answer to me because I am the owner of the company, but we have a remarkable executive team and an, a remarkable management structure. Um, and so my day-to-day -day with them is not as involved as you would think it would be. And they have several layers of people that they answer to before, before it gets to me. <laughs> I've always said that uh, I never wanted a family business. 
I think there are all sorts of issues with family business, especially as you transfer responsibilities and power and ownership, and I have no desire to do that. And by the way, my children are not interested in that either. They both come to the restaurant world very naturally, having worked in it from when they were 12 years, 13, 14 so years old. So you put old. them to work, huh? I put them to work. <laughs> they, you know, they were hostesses, they washed dishes, dishes. they were, um, uh, David was a delivery person for us for years. Um, and none of them, by the way, thought that they would be in the restaurant business. They came back to it after they went off and did something else. There's something remarkably addictive about being in the restaurant world. In fact, I always tell parents every year, uh, right around now, right around spring break, I get all these emails and telephone calls from parents who realize, I think, after spring break that they're going to have to oh, yes. deal with <laughs> junior all summer. So they call me and say, do you have any positions for summer work? Which, by the way, we don't because we don't hire seasonally. We hmm. really work, we're very well staffed and we give people full-time careers as opposed to just seasonal part-time work. But I always tell the parents, be careful because you might get somebody who starts in a restaurant and is their life will be forever <laughs> changed, different, yeah. forever changed. There is something, if you are at all into restaurants, it is something that gets into your blood and is extremely difficult to get rid of. It is an addiction of sorts. And so uh, tell me, what is your company's, uh, what are you doing with sustainability right now? Oh my gosh, we have... Well, we do a lot with sustainability. Our sustainability initiatives are deep. We compost, we system-wide, we compost and recycle um, everything that we can. Um, we have an in-house farmer and an in-house beekeeper who manages our farm property. Um, and we how, how does that change your world to have an in-house beekeeper and farmer? That's not something most people can claim. No, she's wonderful, um, and she's very instrumental in working not only with our chefs but also with our farmers. And she, uh, we have urban farm properties, and she controls all of those and does a wonderful job. We use all the produce. Um, so, how much the of the flowers. produce? How much of the produce do you actually grow for your? own businesses? It, it's not a significant amount just mm-hmm. because of our volume is so high, but Parashu, this is probably the time to talk about this, Parashu supports more family farms and has uh, historically, um, since we opened in 89, we support more family farms than all the other restaurants combined in Indianapolis. Oh my goodness. Um, in fact, I just spoke um, last week at the Indiana Small Farm Conference Um and, you know, the, the plight of small family farms, everyone knows what that is compared to commodity farmers and large farming, large aggregates. Um, federal policy does not favor small family farms. So if you're buying local, you are buying, you should be buying directly from these small farmers. And that's what we do. And we have great relationships with them. And Kate, our in-house farmer, also has good relationships with our farmers. So let's talk about how your relationships with the farmers actually uh, is important to the product we you eat. Um, and I'm just thinking about Crispy Bird and the conversations that began three years before that first fried chicken sandwich was served. Yeah, so, you know, we knew that we wanted to open up this fried chicken restaurant. We knew that it would be a different. It would not be the stereotypic fried chicken restaurant because nothing we do 
is stereotypic. My, my view is if you're going to open up a restaurant that everyone has opened before, why bother? Um, so we look at bar setting. We look at being radically different and radically better in a significant number of ways, one including the, our food sourcing. Um, actually, we, we kind of have five bullet points under that as to things that we look for to be hmm. to, that set us apart. But one of them is our food sourcing. So in knowing that we were going to open up a fried chicken restaurant, I contacted um, my our one of our protein, one of our farmers who raises uh, pork and turkeys for us. Um, and he's a phenomenal voice in the small family farm area. He was on Bill Clinton's... Um, uh, he was on the Council of Small Farmers. He's a very much an advocate in that arena. And I contacted him and I said, here's the thing. I don't want to serve commodity birds. We could. We could serve the same chicken that everyone else is using. But, you know, we're not going to do it that way. And what I really want is a bird that tastes like a bird that I get in France. Because those taste like the kind of chickens that we used to get when I was young. They actually, it's not all white meat. It's not these huge breasts and little bitty drumsticks. It's, in fact, the meat's not even actually white, white. And the breasts aren't equal on both sides because these are chickens that actually get to forage and, and you know, exercise. more, than free, more yeah. than free range, which, you know, all these terms, farm to table, free range, all this stuff, they all have marketing appeal. But when you peel back the onion layers, the, what they mean is sometimes not, it's not very significant. So we really wanted pasture pasture farmed animals. Um, so I contacted Greg and he started bringing in chickens for us and we use heritage birds, which means that we use birds that are genetically what they were a hundred years ago. Um, nothing artificial has been done to them and they do more than free range. They pasture range and we've had a relationship with him where he, he and I and our chef, Chef Tyler Harold, sat down and would eat these chickens periodically to make sure that they were exactly what we <laughs> wanted that. in terms of taste, texture, and look. And the chickens are fabulous, and they, they really are different than a commodity chicken, even a commodity chicken that, like a Whole Foods would sell. These chickens are much different. You can visually look at them and see the difference. They've got a big, really, like, beautiful yellow fat layer underneath the skin, and the texture of the meat is remarkable, um, and it just gives us a much better product. So uh, this reminds me of fried chicken, reminds me that you know it's a fried chicken moment, right? And I think that you're actually quite trend-diverse. I think I've heard your... Um, I am trend-diverse, So yes. I'd love to just hear, you know, what do you think about all these foods that are trendy and you know this food world that we live in now where you know everybody's chasing after middle eastern because somebody opened a great israeli restaurant yes so absolutely i mean i i remember going to new orleans several years ago and going to shia and then i went to los angeles two weeks ago and i went to kismet i was like this is all this is very familiar um and it's wonderful and chicken is one of those foods i believe actually We've had fried chicken on our menu at Petit Chou for the last 10 years. Um, so I think fried chicken is having a moment, but I think fried chicken 
did never lost a moment. And maybe that's because I grew up in Texas and I fried chicken was part of our meals. I loved our walking to my house after school. And I don't know, none of you can relate to this, but my mother used to have newspapers on the counter and they would absorb all the grease and she would be frying chicken, which by the way, is an all day process. So <laughs> that's why fried chicken in restaurants is such a glorious thing because right, you, you don't, don't have, have to do it. To at do home. it. Yeah. yeah. But I, you know what? I, it's not that I'm trend adverse. I'd much rather be ahead of a trend than in the middle of the trend. So what happens is... So what's the trend you want to be ahead of? Like, what is... what? I think we have been ahead of the trend since 89, since I opened my doors. We were working well, with let's, farmers let's in 89. Let's talk about the concept that you might, you know, that you've opened where the Eagles were the other night, because that sounds like fun. Oh, 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 yes. Bar 114. So I opened up uh, a year and a half ago this little listening room. I didn't even know what a listening room was when I opened it, but it is an 18-seat little bar, very luxe, with this remarkable sound system. And what happened is I was sitting on 350 square feet of space that I wasn't using um, in a neighborhood that where my original concept is located. It was right next to it. 350 square feet is the size, basically, of a closet. And... um, at the same time, my father died, and the only thing I inherited from him were, were his vinyls. I inherited a, a probably 1,500 vinyls. And most of them were classical music, but he also happened to have saved every vinyl that my sister and I bought oh when goodness. we were in middle school and high school, so in the 60s and 70s. So I had this remarkable vinyl library, and I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to take this 350 square feet, and I'm going to open up what is really just kind of my little bar, and we're going to listen to these vinyls. And it just so happens that Klipsch Audio is based out of Indianapolis, and of course they are the makers of some of the finest audio equipment, finest speakers in the world. And the second day we were open, we had this remarkable sound system put in, a sound system that really belies the fact that it's 350 square feet. And the president of Klipsch walked in the day after we opened and was like, wait a minute, I've got these speakers for you. And he got from their Birmingham, Alabama space, these most incredible vintage speakers, Forte speakers. Um, So we have this remarkable room uh, the food is exquisite. The menu is insanely edited, but everything is done. It's not bar food at all. Um, and my son happens to be the chef there, and it's just a delightful little space. I feel like that's something that anyone who's listening, anyone who's interested in the notion of like what's next in food, the um, you know the small bar, like the the Japanese way of eating, of serving, you know. 10 to 18 people and serving it in a, not in a closet, but I mean, think one of my great food experiences of all time was actually in a converted coat room in Aspen. Oh. And um, <laughs> did you go to that? Yeah. Yes. Ca- caviar bumps and whiskey. Yeah. It was really, um, it was great. So I'm going to just try to see if anyone has any questions because it's live. Does have any questions? Oh, there's a question back there. I have to ask, while we're here in Austin, what's one of your favorite local restaurants? 
Well, you know what? I honestly love the Elizabeth Street Cafe. I love Vietnamese food, and I think it's wonderful. And then your choices for sushi are outrageous, and there's so many. I've been I've been incredibly impressed. But what I love the most about Austin is how fluid this food scene is here. Um, the food trucks are incredible. Everyone pays remarkable attention to quality and to food sourcing. And on top of that, my service everywhere has been exemplary. And those are things that you just can't find. It's part of the culture here. And you can't find that accidentally. And you can't find that in other cities. It's really insane. Would you agree with that? I would. I mean, I've had such great, uh, great meals in Austin. I love June's all day. Same um, owner, I believe. Yeah, same owner. Yeah. And um, Barley Swine, I was there last night. Uh, I could spend days just eating morning, noon, and night. And the drinking, too. We can't, we can't leave that out. Yeah. And tacos, by the way. Tacos should be the middle name of this city. It's remarkable. <laughs> yeah, Austin Taco, Texas. <laughs> um, me, oh, yeah. One more. So you had mentioned that you're always available to every single employee. What's your quick tip on maintaining that work-life balance? Well, I don't believe in work-life balance in the first place. It's never worked for me. You know, that kind of connotes that you turn things off at a certain time. And once I realized that that was, for me, impossible, um, especially, you know, we run seven days a week, almost 24 hours. I've got a production kitchen and but for three hours a day when we're closed, that production kitchen is working. So I feel like if someone's at work, I need to be, ex- I need to have, they need to have access to me and I need to know what's going on. This goes back to the control freak thing. So I kind of, once I realized that balance was an impossible thing for me to ever achieve and that it would not only drive me insane, but because it was unachievable, it seemed like a ridiculous goal to, to try to get to. I decided that blend was much smarter. So I, I, my children, my family had to understand that when I was home, I had to be tuned into work. And when I'm at work, my employees had to understand that I had to be tuned into home. And by the way, there's a whole third place out there called the community. And, <laughs> and then there's what I need to do for my own downtime Believe it or not, I'm a bit of an introvert, and I need a lot of quiet time. So, you know, it's just, I've just learned to to blend all of it. Now, I recognize that I'm in a remarkably privileged space because I have the flexibility, I have the agency of controlling my own schedule. So I can take my own downtime, or I can turn things, I can, you know, say I'm going to be off of social media for two days or something like that. But I really do believe that if the that that blend has always been my friend and it's worked much better than balance. I love that. I think that um, that's how we're going to end. It's really good, um, the notion of blend, blend wine, <laughs> blend life. Um, thank you so much, Martha Hoover, for joining me for my first ever live podcast here in Austin, South by Southwest. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you all for, for listening. And check out Speaking Broadly on Stitcher and iTunes. See you next week.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.